Hi, my name is Agile, and I support Gen X Grown Up through Patreon, and I believe you should too. Just go to patreon.com slash genxgrownup. Drawn and Paneled is the comic book showcase podcast from Gen X Grown Up. Every Wednesday, we bring you news, reviews, interviews, insight, and commentary on the comic books we love from the golden age to the modern age. Welcome back, Drawn and Panel podcast listener, to this, our back issue edition of our podcast. With me, as always, today is Jason. Hey, everybody. And joining us once again by popular demand is Justin Ryan from Alterna Comics, the creator of the recently optioned Trespasser novel. Hey, how are you doing? Doing great, man. So today... We are here to talk about a mono megalithic. There's, I'm trying to think of all the different <laughs> prefixes that I can use to describe this. It's, it's huge. Just, it's huge. Mega, megalithic, monolithic. I don't know. This was probably the first attempt for DC to rewrite their universe. We're going to talk about Crisis on Infinite Earths today. That's right, man. This was a big book. Yeah, it was incredibly huge. But there were 12 issues in this one. I don't know how you're going to do it, Jason, but tell us a little bit about the book values for Crisis on Infinite Earths. The big one seems to be issue seven, The Death of Supergirl. It's an iconic mm. cover. It's been used in other on other covers throughout the years, uh, paying homage to that cover of Superman crying, holding Supergirl. That book goes for, I've seen $15 to $20 ungraded, graded. Looks like a 9.8 goes for about $88. So yeah, that's a big okay. book. The rest of them, the next big one would be number eight that featured the Flash. Sure. That one, that one's a little bit less. And then the rest, it just varies. Number one hits around $10, sometimes not graded. The rest you could probably find relatively inexpensive. This has also been collected in trade paperback. So if you just want to have it on your shelf, I recommend doing the trade paperback. But they're pretty easy to find and the values are relatively pretty affordable. Justin, I know that you're a little bit younger than I am. Just out of curiosity, have you ever picked up or bought any of the Crisis on Infinite Earth books? Uh, no, uh, this would be the first time I've read it. Oh, okay. Well, this will be fun. Then we've got a person <laughs> who read it when it first came out and a couple other people who are just reading it for the first time. So this ought to be a lot of fun. <laughs> All right, let's go. <laughs> Yo, Joe! Hey there, Drawn and Paneled podcast listener. I want to take just a second to tell you about something you didn't know you were missing. I'm John, and along with Mo. Hey, everybody. And George. Hey, how's it going, guys? We are Gen X Grown Up. Gen X Grown Up is a website, YouTube channel, and audio podcast by and for Generation Xers, kids of the late 70s and early 80s who may have grown older but have refused to grow up. Every week on our podcast, we cover media, games, tech, toys, comics, games, and pop culture of yesterday and today through the eyes of guys who grew up loving that stuff. And every other week, we do a backtrack where we pick a single nostalgic topic from our youth and dig in deep. You can find us anywhere you listen to your podcasts or find us right on our website at genxgrownup.com. If you're a Generation Xer or know someone who is, I hope you'll check out Gen X Grown Up. Your dinner cannot just be french fries. Basically, life sucks as a grown up. 
So let's talk a little bit about the creators. Sure. Jason, who wrote this book? I know, well, I know who wrote the book, but let's tell our podcast listeners who did. This was a guy that we've uh, talked about before on the show. He's one of our favorites, Marv Wolfman. Good Lord, this man just doesn't stop writing, does he? I, I guess not. He he <laughs> did a lot of stuff. He did your favorite, te- you know, new Teen Titans. Mm-hmm. He's created a lot of different characters, uh, you know, for Marvel, DC. He's an extremely prolific writer. Uh, and he definitely, I think... Uh, outdid himself with this one. If I'm not mistaken, this was the first time that DC took an opportunity to totally revamp their universe. And who better to do that than Marv Wolfman? I mean, really, he had his hands on the pulse of comic books of the era. He he writes some of the most fluid and dense dialogue that you'll ever read in a comic book. I mean, the pages are just so full. You really feel like you're reading an entire novel in comic book form. Just right. in, your first time reading this book, what did you think about Marv Wolfman's efforts? Uh, well, you definitely get your money's worth if you're judging it by <laughs> word count. <laughs> um, <laughs> it, it, uh, yeah, you you don't get any of the the big empty panels and, and that kind of stuff like you see in a lot of modern comics. Uh, so that was a little bit of a surprise. It took me a little bit longer to, to work my way through this one than I thought I would. In a way, it's really good because you get, especially in, in a story like this where you've got literally hundreds of characters. Uh, sure. You can still get a mm-hmm. sense of, of who they are with very limited screen time, uh, not only in you know their very outward exposition where they say their names and their powers, but uh, right. also right. when they make a little joke or something, you get kind of understand a little bit more about who they are and why they're in the story, even if they're only there for one or two panels. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and they had to be really smart about that in this book because there were so many characters involved. You're talking about every Earth, every character that DC has, basically. Yes. They're trying to get them all screen time. But if you don't have Marv Wolfman doing the writing, doesn't matter if you don't at least also have George Perez doing the That's pencil right. work. Yes. Yeah, George Perez, he definitely – this is th- – those two guys um, are really great together and – Perez, he just gave us every character, sometimes, you know, smashed a bunch of them up on a page or a panel. The facial details on uh, the characters, the costumes, everything was just outstanding, especially he he did a lot of faces that, you know, of people in agony, pain, terror. There was a lot of wide open mouths, big eyes that you really felt for a lot of these characters. I was really impressed, especially with uh, the, a lot of the cosmic scenes that yes. you could, uh, you know, how do you physically represent five Earths coming together in time and sharing the same space time? How do you represent a calamity in two panels that passes through universes? It seems to me as though if the two people, the writer and the artist are not on the same page, it's going to be awful. But when they are in tune and in sync and they're both talented, like Wolfman and Perez are, I mean, you can do almost anything. And to take, like you said, five alternate universes and combine them in two panels I mean, yeah, brilliant mm-hmm. the way he pulled that off. <laughs> yep. And uh, you'd also have to give a shout out to the letterer in this case for being able to fit all those, you know, words and make it clear who's talking and what's going on at any given time. It was really a, uh, a, an effort between everybody involved in that, that that book wasn't just a jumbled mess. Despite, right. I don't know much about him. Jason, have you learned anything about John Costanza in your research for the episode? 
I did. I did research on all the creators, and John Costanza is a lettering legend. Uh, he did a lot of stuff in the 70s for Jack Kirby with his New Gods and Mr. Miracle mm, stuff. Okay. Also, another big uh, thing that he worked on was The Dark Knight Returns with Frank Miller. Oh, So he's got okay. he's got some pre- pedigree, and there's more that he yeah. worked on besides those. Those are some of the big ones, though. Well, now, and so I would imagine that Miller probably picked up on him from this Infinite Earths issue series because that was done before the Dark Knight stuff, right? So I would think that Miller found him rather than him finding Miller. I would guess so. Uh, the Dark Knight Returns, yeah, it came out probably a year after this book. But, you know, sometimes the way they work on stuff, it, there may have been a little bit of overlap. And plus it was sure. both for DC. So, yeah, I'm not sure how the, you know, the pairing happened. But we'll have to look that one up when we cover the Dark Knight Returns at some point, which I'm sure we will. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, no doubt. Now, it's not just the writer, the penciler, or the letterer. There are also other people. The inkers, the tracers. We love the inker tracer people. (laughs) I always, everybody who's into comic books loves Kevin Smith. We always go back to that one episode where he's like, you're a tracer and chasing Amy. You know, everybody knows that whole segment and everything. Who did the inking on this book, Jason? There's three gentlemen that did the inking at various points on this book. The first is Dick Giordano. He's a legend among inkers. He's mostly known for inking a lot of Neil Adams' work on Batman and Detective Comics in the 70s. Mm, Okay. Uh, He was also, at the time, the vice president, executive editor, or something of DC during this time period. And oh, actually, a decision maker then. Okay. Yes. He actually, because he was doing his other duties and doing the inking, they moved them off of the book. And then the next guy is Jerry Ordway, who is an inker, but also a penciler. He still pops up nowadays in modern comics. He did a lot of work on the various Superman titles. Uh, if you look up his bibliography, uh, it's loaded with Superman. And his style, if you see his pencils, he's very similar to uh, George Perez, in my opinion. Well, it makes sense they would have them on this book then. The last guy is Mike DiCarlo. Uh, he also did a lot of work for DC, Batman, a lot of Batman. Also, he worked uh, on Tales of the New Teen Titans. He did a lot of the Oh, really? Did a lot of inking during the Judas Contract storyline. That was a really good storyline. Very popular. Those three books are actually really high in value, usually when you can find them as a set somewhere. Going into this, reading all these guys that worked on these books, they all had experience with a lot of the different various characters that were featured you know, throughout the story. Well, and I think that's important because, number one, you've got Wolfman and Perez, the team mm-hmm. who have already worked together. They've done a lot of stuff. Everybody knows their combination. And I find it interesting that it takes three inkers and three colorists to keep up with Perez and Wolfman who were doing their parts separately and singly. You can tell that this book, DC had all their eggs in one basket, so to speak. So they threw everybody they could to try and bring this home as a success. Yeah, absolutely. I'm sure you're a big hit on Halloween, Zartan, but it'll take more than a false face to fool my people. Thank you, Colonel Sharp. Your voice was the only thing missing. 
Now let's pay a visit to Blackwater Prison. I'm sure the Cobra Commander will be delighted to see us. Is the world of today getting you down? Well, then why not check in on some of the good stuff that happened this week in movies, TV, games, and more 30, 20, and 10 years ago this very week with our show, 302010. You may have seen NBC's TV movie, A Twist of Fate. A Nazi who became a Jew and for decades <laughs> he got away with it. How could you do it? Ben Cross, Veronica Hamill, Twist of Fate. Premiere Sunday. Yeah. A Nazi who became a Jew. If we, oh my God, it's the reverse Stephen Miller story. <laughs> if we hadn't had... And now I have to see it because like the scene where they show him like a Nazi who became a Jew, that little clip on the YouTube video <laughs> is like the Joker's transition. Oh, he had plastic... The story plastic... is he had plastic surgery. So what plastic surgery did you have, my yeah, friend, to make yourself look more specific. Jewish? be <laughs> specific. Just a, just a Nazi trying to do the right thing. Jump into the past with 302010 every Thursday on LaserTimePodcast.com or iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. Five, four, three, two, one. Guys, we talked about the creators. There's a lot of creators involved, but there were a lot more characters involved in this yeah. <laughs> this book. Starting off, uh, the characters we've got the monitor. Uh, who's kind of pulling strings and he's got a team of characters he pulls throughout time, space to help him with his mission. That team has got a lot of people on it. You got Blue Beetle, you mm -hmm. got Superman from Earth 2, you got Green Lantern, Obsidian, Dawnstar, a guy named Psycho Pirate, best yes. name ever, uh, Simon, <laughs> Geoforce from The Outsiders is there, Cyborg from the Teen Titans. You got Firestorm, who's even a modern character in today's cinematic universes. Right. Killer Frost, really cool character. I completely forgotten about her actually being in comic books. I only think about her being on The Flash. Firebrand, Arion. Uh, he was, wasn't he the guy from Atlantis, Arion? Yes, right? he was the sorcerer from Atlantis. Yeah, very cool character. Uh, Solovar and Dr. Polaris. One of the characters that was kind of unique and interesting is kind of this Watcher character, Pariah. What'd you guys think about that character? Uh, I was very entertained by Pariah pretty much every time he showed up. I, I don't know if he's a, a regular character in the comics or not, but, uh, you know, he was he was always very dramatic whenever mm, he showed up. Oh, of course, yeah. he was always there in, in times of great crisis. But, sure, uh, he, perfect he, he name always for the character. To be, yeah, he always seemed to be like one level extra compared to everyone else who right. was in any of his scenes. As far as people with pained and agonizing faces, every time a pariah, I think, has the most panels with a horrified look on his face. Oh, sure. Yeah, absolutely. Throughout the whole series. I'm not sure he had any panels where he didn't have a horrified, agonizing <laughs> yeah. look on his face. <laughs> and then what about Harbinger? Now, this is a character I knew nothing about before the series. She seems to be able to split herself up amongst different versions of herself that go out and can do things independently. Yeah, that's what it looked like. I, I had a little hard time, you know, putting it all together. Then it made sense. But yeah, she seems to be a young woman. Uh, and then she takes the form of Harbinger and it's almost like two different personalities. Uh, she mm -hmm. was a very interesting character and one of the main, you know, main characters that kind of pushes the story forward as we go along. And then, of course, the man with the plan himself, the monitor. This is going to be a really interesting character because not only is the monitor a central figure in this book, there's a new TV. I don't want to call it a crossover because it looks like they're going to go a whole new series or something. But in all the winter break shows for the DC universe on CW, mm -hmm. 
they did the same ending to each show and the monitor is one of the final characters that shows up in that one. So it looks like they're going to do this crisis on infinite earth in TV form now. And the monitor is going to be a big part of that. I saw that and I saw the actor, uh, the way he looks as the monitor and they did a pretty good job with capturing the comic, you know, version of him. I thought, does he have that haircut? He mm-hmm. does. The yes. mutton chops and everything, the exact same <laughs> yeah. thing. It's like Mr. T Perfect. meets Elvis or something. It's kind of a weird haircut. All right. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Justin, what about The Flash? He was pretty central in this book. What'd you think of his role? Was that a pun, uh, the central? <laughs> central city. <laughs> <laughs> nice. Um, yeah, the the Flash, I, I felt like he definitely got a, uh, a bad hand dealt compared to a lot of the other heroes in, in his role. Um, you know, he is basically spends most of it getting tortured by the psycho pirate mm-hmm. and then runs himself to death through time and then is just gone. <laughs> yeah. And it was almost like a wicked witch of the West melting kind of feel to it when he yeah, passes that was definitely, away. Uh, when he first shows up, I, I believe his first appearance was to Batman, um, mm-hmm. if I'm not mistaken. And yes. uh, yeah, he that was a very haunting moment in the book uh, yeah. to, to see him. Well, especially because I think there were some illusions made in some of the panels that this was just after the Flash trial. And so the Flash had been put in jail at this point. So none of them were expecting to see him. And then they see him, but he's melting away before their eyes. So really creepy kind of vibe stuff. It even scared the Joker. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. There was also a really interesting character that I thought we should talk a little bit about, and that's the character of Alex Luther. The baby from Earth 3 that grew up to be a teenager in a matter of minutes, it appeared sure, to be. Or panels, yeah. right. Yeah. yeah, panels, yeah. <laughs> and Alex Luther, his parental lineage is kind of unique. It's Lex Luthor obviously is his father, but then mm-hmm. his mother is Lois Lane of that earth, which mm-hmm. uh, who saw Lex Luthor and Lois Lane getting together? Although <laughs> I guess, you know, if you're going to do a, a reverse earth, so to speak, that's the two you would probably put together in the DC universe. But yeah, except was, uh, you would think Lois Lane would be evil in that in that world, too. Maybe, but, but. Yeah, well, but she wasn't evil <laughs> and he was good. And then the superheroes yeah. were evil, but they were still fighting to save that planet when they could. Yeah. That's one of the things I enjoyed most about the overall story was was kind of the theme that uh, the heroes and the villains would would both have to band together to mm-hmm. to mm-hmm. save the world, even though the villains were obviously doing it so they could then be in control or to dominate sure. people. Right. Uh, it was it was really cool to see like. Brainiac or, or Lex Luthor being the people who were saving the day. Dr. Light was also an interesting character. The original Dr. Light is apparently dead and the monitor creates a new Dr. Light in a female form, which was, this was kind of part of what crisis on infinite nurse was going to do. It was going to flip all your favorites on, on mm-hmm. their heads and do different things with them. Uh, yes, and this was her debut. I'm familiar with the character, but I didn't know her origins. But we really see her hero's journey throughout uh, this book. She's, you know, starts out as kind of not sure what's going on, doesn't like anybody, and by the end becomes a hero. Yeah, and then without a doubt, if you're going to have the monitor, you've got to have somebody for him to fight. And who better than the anti-monitor? I'm like, was it? 
anti-monitor is the best title Wolfman could have came up with for this character? Like, was he just not going to watch anything? Is that his role or what? <laughs> but, <laughs> it was weird. I mean, they, they basically took the monitor's outfit and stuck Skeletor inside of him and then made him mean because the monitor himself wasn't necessarily a guy you would want to go out drinking with. But no, they had to take somebody and they had to give monitor somebody to fight. All right, let's just create the anti monitor. I felt that was a little bit of a letdown. You could have done more with the naming or the background of that character. Felt like they kind of fell a little flat on that one. What about you guys? Um, I didn't really consider it too much. I, I can see why in the story you wouldn't want to necessarily introduce a brand new villain with a very unique backstory or power set or anything mm-hmm. because they're pretty much just serving as a plot point for the heroes and the villains to come together as something to defeat and as a threat to combine these planets. That said, I wasn't ever particularly impressed with him as, as a villainous presence. Uh, yeah. he, was, he was mean, he had slaves, he was powerful. That, but other than that, there wasn't a whole lot you could say about right. him as far as uh, his personality. Sure, but nevertheless, there were still a lot of great characters in this book and they all created some awesome stories. Welcome to my domain, Colonel Sharp. While G.I. Joe and Cobra battle for the land, I, Zartan, rule the swamp. Have you ever wondered what it would be like if Toy Story was a slasher? What if Peter Pan required a sacrifice to get into Neverland? The Dusk County Chronicles, the first official release from Metal Ninja Studios, is set for release in mid-2019. It's a horror parody mini-anthology that takes your favorite childhood stories and dreams and twists them into nightmares. This comic is perfect for anyone who loves reliving the stories of their youth while also seeing them in a new light. Visit MetalNinjaStudios.com slash GenXGrownUp to read the first two stories and sign up to get notified first when the comic comes out in mid-2019. You've got your creators, you've got your characters. Once you've got all those things in a pot and mix it up and boil it on the stove, you come out with a story. (laughs) That's right. (laughs) One of the interesting parts of this one is that this story definitely spans the universe, so to speak, in just 12 issues. And a lot of that has to do with Wolfman's writing style, Perez's art style. I mean, they put together a very get-your-money's-worth series in these books. I mean, each issue Mm -hmm. felt like it could have been three or four issues on its own, really. Sorry, the thought of this as a 12-issue miniseries is uh, very misleading (laughs) (laughs) if you just look at it in those terms. Right. It feels like it's like three or 400 pages worth. It's almost like reading Roots. You know, it's just no matter what you feel like, okay, I'm getting near the end and you look through and I'm only on issue five. Really? Damn. (laughs) Yes. This thing just keeps going. Uh, One of the more interesting characters we talked a little bit about during the segment was Pariah. Pariah has a curse, right? He is forced based on his crimes that he's committed to the universe, he has been cursed with having to watch the total destruction of each multiverse as it happens. He's transported there against his will, and he has to witness it for whatever reason. I have no idea other than to punish him. Yeah, he keeps going back and, you know, keeps getting drawn in. He goes, oh, no, I got to go again. (laughs) Yeah. If I'm not mistaken, it, it wasn't actually so much that he was cursed as the monitor had was using him kind of as a, a magnet to locate where the antimatter was attacking. Oh, you know, I didn't pick up on that. Okay. 
yeah, I think I think that's why they at the end they were using him, um, if I'm not mistaken, to locate uh, the anti-monitor. So he was more like a beacon. Okay. Yeah. So it was less of a curse and more just a really yes. really bad side effect of his power. <laughs> well, it was still a curse, but it, was, it might not yeah. have been a curse in the traditional sense. Yeah, Pariah yeah. even calls it a curse during one of the yeah. issues. Yes, just terrible. This poor guy keeps getting sucked in. He try he tries to save people. And it just doesn't work. He just has to watch and watch. Well, so and that's watch interesting. Pariah, obviously, from his point of view, sees it as a curse. But then, from another person's point of view, the monitor—that's just part of the plan in order to save the multiverses, right? So, let's talk a little bit about the monitor's plan. This guy. He does kind of a thing like we might have seen in, say, Infinity Gauntlet when, you know, they were trying to come up with a plan to stop Thanos. This is kind of that same kind of a feel. This was a thought out plan that the Monitor had in order to try and stop what he was seeing. What do you guys think about his plan? Well, it it didn't go so good for him for a while there. (laughs) He ends up getting killed by his protege. Uh, and some of the, you know, a lot of it doesn't go his way. He's got the five, uh, I believe it was five or six power stations or whatever they were. The tuning forks, right? Yeah. To drain the anti-monitor's power away from him. Uh, What did you think, Justin? Uh, You know, I'd probably have to read it again to really, you know, put a put a bullet point of his actual plan together. Um, (laughs) Yeah, right. Might have to read it four or five times. Yeah, him and the Animator were definitely playing a chess game that, that kind of went back and forth. There was a lot of on-the-fly changes that the Monitor had to deal with. Let's talk a little bit about the death of the Monitor, you know, perpetrated by Harbinger, who was being influenced by, I guess, the Anti-Monitor at that point. Right. I, just, you know, crazy idea to think that he actually foresaw that in some way. I guess he is the monitor, so I guess he kind of sees all. Maybe that's part of his power, but you know, I really appreciated how they incorporated that in the middle of the story. It wasn't like an ending that you would have expected. You could have seen his death coming in issue 11 or 12, not in issue what was it, 3 or 4 or something like that? Yeah, he died pretty early on. And he foreshadowed it in the first issue that Harbinger is going to kill me and you think mm-hmm. you're, you see it at one point and then it kind of goes on with the story and then he gets, you know, blown away and Harbinger and Pariah are left, you know, not knowing what to do after the monitor dies because he was the man with the plan. And after his death, Harbinger kind of shakes off that influence from the anti-monitor. Like she comes out of her shell a little bit, so to speak, like, oh, what happened? I don't know what's going on. And then you start to see that tail into the death of the multiverses themselves. And when I went back and was reading this in preparation for the episode, I was like, holy crap, the multiverses died this early? I don't remember that happening, but it was right there in the book. So I was really shocked by that. We see all these multiverses dying and it's throughout all the time and history of the DC universe. So we see all the Western characters. We see Sergeant Rock and all the World War II characters. We see cavemen. We see Kamandi, the last boy on Earth, the Legion of Superheroes. Yeah, that was a neat little cameo. (laughs) Yeah, they they had everybody. That's I like that about the book. I didn't realize that I've heard about this book for years. I didn't you know, realize that, wow, they really threw in everybody from DC in there. Justin, what did you think about the whole smorgasbord of characters that were introduced in this story? Uh, that was definitely uh, one of the, the more interesting parts of it uh, was, you know, kind of seeing everybody come together. Um, unfortunately, since the book was a little bit before my time, I, I wasn't really familiar with a lot of the, the characters, especially the ones who 
died or right. you know were swallowed <laughs> up because you know I've I've never even read a comic that had them in it. So so that was really interesting. I really enjoyed Earth Three uh, with you know Lex Luthor as the the superhero and everyone else as the villains. A lot of cool stuff in this book. We had the death of the multiverses. Then we had the Earths merging together to try and stave off the Anti Monitor for a little while. I thought that was a unique spin on how to combat what was going on. You know, let's bring all the Earths together so that they form this barrier, so to speak, to the Anti Monitor's plan. But right. I think one of the saddest parts of the entire storyline, and it's obvious based on which book is the most expensive today when you're trying to put this collection together, is The Sacrifice of Supergirl. That was a very huge emotional moment in any series, watching her death. And she was not the character you would expect to die, but just really powerful, I thought. She goes out like a hero. Uh, I was, I didn't, I knew that you know, from years of hearing about this book, I knew that she died, but I didn't realize. I mean, she took it to the anti-monitor big time um, and, you know, threw down with him. And it was really my favorite issue of the series. It was the whole the whole issue was a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, I think that was definitely a highlight of the book. Uh, as you mentioned, it was uh, especially good because of of how powerful her her final moments were uh she came closer to destroying the anti-monitor than anyone else had at that point and uh it as i believe it was uh the new dr light that was watching her at that time yes it literally changed who she was <laughs> as a person too uh to to make her realize that selflessness was the only way to save the world that it was would ultimately serve her better than than selfishness. I thought that was really smart. Yeah, that's a great legacy for for Supergirl to have left. Yeah, I mean, and not only that, but the fact that the writers were smart enough to think, okay, we could have Superman sacrifice himself. We could have Batman sacrifice himself, you know, the main character. But to take a character who was, first and foremost, we all know that especially during these this era it was a male dominated industry as far as superheroes were concerned but to take the female character and show her as the strongest of them all and to take the anti-monitor that close to his own destruction i thought that was really brilliant i was happy that they did that and then to use her death like you said to change another character who became a super strong female character in her own right i just thought that was brilliant and i can't stress enough how smart it is to read some of these books now when you look at some of the schlock that comes out of the big two right now i mean the stories that are in these books are akin to the stories coming out of the independent movement that i love so much today another big moment in this series is the issue right after supergirl sacrifice and that's the fate of the flash yeah yeah the flash we we saw it coming through the the series with him appearing in gotham city and then man it it was hard to watch his scenes with the psycho pirate. I mean, he's just being tortured and then he ends up having a hero moment uh, and, and, you know, destroys the monitor's machine. I think I was most interested in that all of the other heroics take place on a great big scale. You know, they're in front of the other heroes. They're, they're all surrounded by their teammates and everything. Sure. Um, Both his torture by the psycho pirate and Mm -hmm. his eventual heroics were not witnessed by anyone except for the reader. 
Right. Um, everyone else is just aware that, oh, the antimatter thing stopped. That's all they know um, and, and aren't even aware that the, the Flash, you know, that Barry Allen sacrificed himself at the time uh, to save the universe. He was alone in that moment. And that was, I think, what uh, what made that death hit so hard. Mm-hmm. Yeah, very poignant. Right. And I don't care what anybody says. Barry Allen's still the best Flash of all time. But <laughs> I I really enjoyed how they took the scale back, right? Because like you said, everything up until that point in the series was all grand scales, cosmic this, planets merging together, that, you know, people coming from different time periods and everything. And here's the Flash in his own private little hell still being the hero. I don't think you can do a better job of focusing in on a character when you have that big, huge pot of characters that we talked about already being shown in the first seven issues at that point. This is issue number eight. Right. Just really smart to go that route. Still a great story and great stories all deserve great endings. And this one did have a really interesting, awesome ending that allowed the DC universe to basically have a rebirth, not the rebirth that we all know today, right? (laughs) a completely different rebirth, probably the first rebirth of the DC universe. What'd you guys think about how they handled that? You know, I, again, I'm not I'm not too familiar with the comics pre-crisis, and I, I didn't start reading until even several years after after the crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I don't know exactly how the rebirth went, but from the the, the ending of Crisis, I thought it was a, a very cool idea, and I, I think it would have been necessary at the time to to kind of merge these different universes so that you know a, a new generation of readers like myself could come into it and see what it was without just being completely overwhelmed. That said, it it seems like a little bit of an odd choice that the book that created this universe would be so not new reader friendly. Right. But, uh, I, I <laughs> right. guess as kind, of a, as kind of a farewell to the people who have been reading for for all this time and do know who who all these characters are and everything. Yeah, that's I kind think, of a final hurrah yeah, for them. That's a good I think point. issues 1 and one through 11 were definitely targeted at the previous readers and issue mm-hmm. 12 is targeted more toward the new readers as you called it. The whole purpose of this book was, you know, it was a big event but it was Marv Wolfman's brain child. He was a writer and editor for DC and he thought that the books weren't new reader friendly. You had all these multiple earths and things were getting lost in the stories with continuity, with people having met each other before, but then another issue, they act like they don't know each other. And so, you know, he came up with this epic story to basically start anew with the DC universe. Remember, if a fire breaks out in your home, always test the door first. If it's hot, find another exit or yell for help. Now we know. And no one is half the battle. G.I. Joe! Are you ready for Infinity Con Year 6? March 2nd and 3rd in Lake City, Florida. You will see Bob Layton, Super Smash Brothers Ultimate Tournament, a $1,000 grand prize cosplay contest. We will have artists, vendors, and more you don't want to miss this year. It's at March 2nd and 3rd in Lake City, Florida. InfinityConFL.com for more information today. If anything in this episode has piqued your interest, we put links in the show notes you can click on to find out more. Catch up on past shows and be alerted every week when a new one drops by subscribing to us wherever you get your podcasts. We love to hear from our podcast listeners, so email your thoughts, suggestions, questions, ideas, or complaints on this or any other episode to podcast at drawnandpanel.com. 
And that will wrap it up for this, our back issue edition of the Drawn and Paneled podcast. Gentlemen, I had a ton of fun trying to say as many words as Marv Wolfman put in this series with you guys today. I don't know if we accomplished that, but man, this was a fun series to go over. (laughs) Justin, before we get out of here, I want to give you an opportunity to tell everybody where they can find Trespasser, Alterna Comics, and all the wonderful stuff that you're involved with. Um, I would recommend checking out the Etsy shops for uh, both Alterna Comics as a whole and for the individual creators. You can get first print runs, signed copies, all that kind of stuff for the original cover price. Um, um, awesome. It's also available through third-party retailers, but uh, I would check Etsy first if, if they're not at your local comic shop. All right, Justin, once again, thank you so much for joining us again this week. No, thank you. And Jason, as always, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. Oh, thank you. I had fun with this book. And we will see you guys next time. See you guys later. This podcast is an affiliate of the GWW Radio Network. Visit Geeks Worldwide at thegww.com for news, reviews, and opinions on video games, comics, TV, cosplay, and more. Don't you know that you're a grown-up? I'm a grown-up. Me too. Yep, me too. But you know, these days, being a grown-up can really suck. Luckily, we're grown-ups who grew up in the coolest generation. We had video arcades. And also some of the best TV and movies ever made. We lived the origin of awesome consumer electronics. The list goes on and on. Yep, Generation X. Exactly. And we're Gen X Grown-Up. Every week, the Gen X Grown-Up podcast explores media, tech, toys, games, and more from both yesterday and today. Through the eyes of Generation Xers who absolutely love that stuff. You can find us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. Or find us on our website, genxgrownup.com. Alright, you think that was good enough? I I hope so, man. I'm tired. (laughs) Who listens to a promo on a podcast and then goes and listens to a different podcast? Right. I've never done it. (laughs) Right.